A poem. Really? A poem? A dream of a vision. A voice calls your name. A brief image of her face. You search. Her voice is familiar, but you cannot identify it. You search, but no friend, no acquaintance matches it. Now, you cannot recall the image or the character of her voice. No detail remains but one. You know her voice was perfect. I'm Bradley Rolfe, and I'm reading my blog. What you just heard was a post from March 4th, 2016, and it post-dates what I'm about to read. They were originally written in a notebook and then typed up into the blog a few days after they were actually written. What follows are four posts that I wrote while I was taking a little day trip in early March 2016. Pilgrim's Travelogue Number one, the following series will have post-dated timestamps because a bulk of their content was written in a real notebook. Wednesday, March 2nd, 2016, Caddo Lake State Park, Texas. The other week when my work schedule was posted, I noticed three days off in a row, which was unusual. I noted the peculiarity and was slightly saddened at the lack of hours but soon decided to make the most of it. I have recently finished reading the book A Year of Living Prayerfully by Jared Brock. In it, he travels the world seeking out as many different prayer traditions connected to the Christian faith as he can. His journey is entertaining on its own, but his stories open me up to some things in my faith. I came away with some new tools and approaches for prayer, but more importantly, an impetus to develop a hunger for and a discipline of prayer in my daily life. One particular tradition stuck out to me, the pilgrimage. Brock's stories reinforced the cliche of the journey and the destination that traveling hundreds of miles in silence and solitude but with the Lord has infinitely more value than the old bones of a saint. These three days offered me the opportunity to get away and spend some quality time in solitude. So last week I made my plan, rented a car, and got out of town as early as I could this morning. Early on in the drive, I was just trying to get comfortable in the Corolla I had picked up. I'm pretty sure it's the only car I have ever driven that was produced in this decade, and I will have a full Consumer Reports review of it after I get back. But... Once the cruise control was set, all I had was the open road and silence. I've made long drives before, but typically with the company of a travel companion, or NPR. But since this was me and prayer, 
no radio. The drive down to Caddo Lake was fairly productive. Another bit I took away from Brock's book was the value of scripted or form prayers. I never thought a prayer from a book could be genuine, but the purpose of a memorized prayer is that bits of life will act as triggers reminding you of the prayer, and you can then meditate on it and its implications. I even came up with one of my own, which I feel will be a useful tool. I stopped for gas in Little Rock. The first Pentecostal church there is huge and gaudy and beautiful. I arrived here at camp with ample sunlight to walk the grounds. They have a nature trail, a swamp, and an old WPA-era pavilion. It's a pretty good spot, but unless you have a boat to take out on the lake, I don't see its appeal as a camping park. You can explore about the whole thing in a day. Nice, though. But of course, a true pilgrimage. While the journey is the important part, it is vital to have a destination. And this small eastern Texas state park, while nice, is no shrine. Pilgrim's Travelogue number two, Thursday, March 3rd, 2016, 8.30 a.m., Galveston, Texas. Sleeping in the trunk of a Toyota Corolla is not as easy as I expected it to be. I've been on a bit of a minimalism kick recently, and I had really romanticized my travel light ethos going into the trip. I figured I could pay for the rental, the campsite, and pack all the food I needed in advance and not actually spend money on anything but gas all three days. All I really brought with me was some snacks, a change of clothes, toiletries, and a sleeping bag and pillow. Sleep in the car, snack on the road, don't waste time on frivolities. I woke often through the night and ended up with a mild but persistent headache, no doubt a result of my sleeping arrangement and the fact that I ate nothing but trail mix the previous day. At 2.35 in the morning, I decided I had gotten all the rest I was going to, so I broke camp early. Now, I'm writing this from a diner across the street from the beach, drinking a much-needed cup of coffee, and eating some much-more-needed beignets. May I must not live on granola alone. So much for the romance. Let me back up to 2.35 a.m. Leaving camp, my GPS estimated I could make it to Galveston by 7.32. Nice. Maybe see the sunrise and beat any rush hour traffic near Houston. Unfortunately, I would get neither. As the photo above shows, this morning is particularly overcast. It is also windy and 66 degrees Fahrenheit, which honestly I love. But the sun would have been nice. But Houston... Houston has about 12 and a half interstates wrapped around it, and everyone in the city is driving on all of them at any given time. Plus, any time these arterial routes split and merge, traffic has to stop, because no one is in the correct lane, but with nine to choose from, you can hardly blame them. 
all this, by the time I get through the outer suburbs to the outermost loop around the sprawl, lo and behold, it is a toll road, which wouldn't be a problem, but for the fact that signs claim no cash is accepted and you must have an easy tag pass or face a citation. Thanks for making it so easy. I leave the highway and forge a path through a forgotten neighborhood and eventually catch back up with a highway that is legal for outsiders to use. Reflecting on that frustration, I'm reminded of a prayer I was given at the outset of my trip. Goes like this. That's bullshit. That's sinful. That's broken. That has the potential to be redeemed. Let me expand. This is sort of a trigger prayer. Anytime you react to something as a low to malarkey or whatever, more or less colorful languages in your vernacular, finish the phrase. The that in this prayer is the same thing throughout. Following this form, I quickly turn my frustration over to God. I realize I'm reacting strongly because whatever it is doesn't fit God's plan. Then I realize it is merely a symptom of a broken world and therefore being a part of God's creation has a role in his redemptive plan. From condemnation to restoration in seconds flat. Galveston, by the way, looks like a typical coastal tourist town. It's nice to see that being right on the Gulf, they boast fine local seafood establishments like Landry's and Joe's Crab Shack. And being off-season and a Thursday morning and overcast, the main drag is empty, aside from joggers and commuters. It's an odd mix, though. The island is big enough that while the beachfront has a resort town feel to it, Galveston is a real city with schools and auto dealerships and carpet stores. It also has an affluent part of town on the inland harbor, and it also has historic homes in varying states of disrepair, vacant lots, and no doubt poor people. It may just be the weather today, but as I walked around, I sensed a pervasive sadness in this town. I made sure to walk the beach and touch the gulf, and then I walked out to the edge of a jetty where, due to high winds, the gulf touched me. I skipped a shower at camp this morning, and I don't think my recent saltwater sprinkling is going to count, so I should find a truck stop to wash up before the rest of my day. Next stop, one hour north, sunny and a high of 88. Houston. Pilgrim's Travelogue number three. Thursday afternoon, March 3rd, 2016. Houston, Texas. Today I learned that a truck stop shower costs $12 and includes towels, soap, and a private toilet. Or at least this one did. It was pretty swank. But now I'm in Houston's museum district, eating my first Whataburger and processing my day. I visited the Menial Collection, a campus of galleries which, in addition to their main building, includes a gallery dedicated to works by Cy Twombly and one that is a Dan Flavin installation. But before all that, my first stop was to my real destination, the shrine of my pilgrimage, Rothko Chapel. 
I'm not going to assume you are familiar with Mark Rothko's work, but I'm not going to try to distill it here either. Feel free to ask the internet if you don't know. I was generally aware of Rothko for a while, but a couple years ago, the St. Louis Art Museum held an exhibition of nine pieces, and it was a wonderful introduction. He was commissioned by the Menial family to produce work specifically for this non-denominational chapel, and worked closely with the architects to be sure the pieces to be housed there would display exactly as he wanted. The chapel sits on a small residential block, and in front of the door is a brief plaza with a reflecting pool. In that pool is displayed a sculpture entitled Broken Obelisk, or rather it is usually displayed. Core 10 steel, also known as weathering steel, is an alloy that was introduced in mid-20th century. Its characteristic property is that it doesn't need to be painted as it develops a rust and patina that creates a protective layer over the steel. It soon became a popular media for large-scale public sculpture. If you've seen a public sculpture produced in the 1960s or 70s, chances are it's Corten, and Broken Obelisk is one of them. Unfortunately, the longevity of the alloy was overestimated. A number of atmospheric conditions can contribute to an accelerated decay of Corten, a steel that was supposed to be cheaper than stainless and last forever. A broken promise. By my brief research, I believe this is Broken Obelisk's third series of reconditioning and restoration. The piece also has a pretty wild history of how it ended up at Rothko Chapel. You should look it up. As a society, we consider the degradation of certain pieces of art a tragedy. We want great works to remain and be known by generations to come. And that attitude, and what Core 10 Steel represents, is indicative of humanity's thirst for immortality. We have an innate sense that we can and should live forever. We build monoliths to outlast our lives, to carry our name, to be our legacy. But nothing we build is impervious to decay. We are powerless to write our own salvation. If you look at pictures of the chapel, I would say from the outside it looks smaller in person, but the inside feels larger. In the small lobby, I signed the guest book. A sign on the desk welcomed visitors, exhorting them to turn off electronic devices and refrain from camera use, and ended with the phrase, The experience is in the silence. I can't think of a more fitting companion to the theme of my mini-pilgrimage. The space is masterfully composed, and the structure of the ceiling lets in a ring of indirect, natural light. It was still cloudy when I visited, so every time the sun peeked through the clouds, the space brightened, then dimmed as if taking a breath. But the true art of Rothko Chapel is not in its architecture or any of the 14 massive canvases housed there. The experience is in the silence. And I know no other place that better cultivates and amplifies silence.
Rothko Chapel reminds me of two things. One, in The Empire Strikes Back, Luke is training on Dagobah, and when he goes into the evil cave, he asks Yoda what is in there. Only what you take with you, Yoda replies. In the silence, you only have what you take with you. The other is in the book of Acts, in the Bible. Paul speaks to the men of Athens and says, You are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Rothko Chapel strikes me as such an altar. If Rothko Chapel was a hearty meal, then the menu collection is dessert. What a worthless metaphor. I could go into great detail about the cool stuff I saw, but let me drop some names and then hit a few highlights. Some of these are temporary exhibits and not permanent members of the collection. Michael Heiser, Salvador Dali, Rene Magritte, CPLY, Max Ernst, Jasper Johns, Cy Twombly, Dan Flavin, and Rothko again. Do a quick search of any of those you're unfamiliar with. Magritte has long been a favorite artist of mine, and seeing a gallery room with only his pieces was a very special treat. Being a surrealist, his work is intended to shock and surprise, but as I am familiar with his works and style, and the common cast of characters and themes, I was shocked to find that one of his pieces surprised me. It took a minute, but a detail in the telescope jumped out at me. If you look at the image, on the surface it is supposed to be impossible, but just as I thought my mind had reconciled all of it and come to terms with the strangeness, I found a detail that makes the image even more impossible. I literally laughed out loud and then smiled for a long time after. We have a side Twombly in the modern wing of the St. Louis Art Museum, and it's good, but not the most striking piece on its own. In the Cy Twombly Gallery, each room has pieces similar in composition. Each one was like a different album in a musician's discography. You might think that seeing the same thing over and over would be boring or decrease your appreciation for the work, but as a musician, I likened it to the theme and variation of a symphony. I liked that gallery very much, and now I want to read up on Twombly and learn more about his art in the context of his life and contemporaries. Another thing that struck me about all the exhibitions in the Menial Collection, the accompanying placards only listed the title, artist, year, and media. There were no interpretations of any individual pieces. There were gallery pamphlets that gave a contextual overview, but nothing more. I think I liked that no one was telling me what each brushstroke represents. And then there's this burger. Well-composed, flavorful, but not surprising. They also serve picante sauce as a condiment. At first, that was a surprise, but in light of the cultural context, it makes sense. I dipped my fries in it. It worked, but it didn't change my world. I have a lot more to process, which I guess is good, because I have about four hours back to camp, and then a little more than eight hours home tomorrow morning.
Pilgrim's Travelogue number 4. Friday afternoon, March 4th, 2016. A nondescript coffee shop, St. Louis, Missouri. Last night I tried sleeping in the passenger seat. It was a little better than the trunk, but I was not served well by the sporty contours of its design. Let me get my consumer review out of the way now. Skip this paragraph if you're disinterested. See, this is no ordinary Toyota Corolla. It's a Corolla S, which stands for sport. I'm sure there's something to do with the suspension and the horsepowers and whatnot that make it special, but the thing I noticed most was the racing-inspired seat design. The seat back has deeply contoured wings that I suppose cradle you against the g-forces of a high-speed turn, but for me they were too deep into a too narrow back which means I could never settle in and get comfortable, sleeping or driving. Another sporty feature is the button on the console that says sport. I pressed it, and a light on the dash reading sport was illuminated. But overall, all the things you need from a car are in places you expect them, it accelerated quickly enough when I needed it to, and the gas mileage was good, so the verdict, C+, wouldn't buy. Even though I slept better, I didn't sleep well, which led to another dark and early departure from camp. The ride back was less eventful than the ride down, but I did learn a little more. In the silence, if I don't direct my mind to anything in particular, I'm flooded with songs that have been stuck in my head in the past. Half-remembered pop songs consisting of a partial verse and misheard lyrics on a 20-second loop. Driving in Texas, I saw a lot of large crosses and Jesus-themed billboards. As I prayed, I struggled with these displays. In Christian culture, there's a popular phrase, Make his name famous among the nations. I've known enough seminarians to know the most important part of biblical interpretation is context, so let me offer this light rebuke to my brothers and sisters. A quick search brought four verses that this may reference. Psalm 105, 1, 1 Chronicles 16, 8, Isaiah 12, 4, and Malachi 1, 11. The first three in that list include something the above mantra does not. From Psalms. Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name, making known among the nations what he has done. Chronicles and Isaiah follow suit with the what he has done. This distinction is important because God is living and active and he is a person. Symbols have no inherent meaning. An individual passing a cross or a Jesus sign at 75 miles an hour will assign it whatever message they want. Seeing a cross doesn't impact anyone's pre-existing perceptions of Christ. And the prophet Malachi leaves out any imperative whatsoever, saying, My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. On the note of context, the above is also referring to the Israelites not bringing their best sacrifices to the temple. Spoiled foods, crippled animals. I find it a twofold reminder. One, to bring our best to the Lord. It's all His anyway. But two, even when we screw up, we don't have the power 
to spoil God's marketing campaign. He welcomes us into the canvassing team, but we're not the PR manager because no matter what we do, his name will be great. I don't want to demean Billboard Ministry, as Christ has the power to advance his gospel by any means, but when the rich young man in Matthew 19 asked Jesus what he should do to be perfect, Jesus didn't say, sell your possessions and make a primetime media buy. He said, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Then come, follow me. It's odd. A trip ends as soon as you arrive home. In spite of my planned Friday return, I expected to feel back on Saturday. But no, 1,600 miles have passed, and I am back, and my trip is over. It feels weird that I have plans to hang out with friends tonight. I haven't talked to anyone but service workers and God for the past three days. Yesterday I was at the beach. Yesterday I was at Rothko Chapel. Yesterday I experienced silence, deeper than I had before. Tonight... I see a rock and roll musical. I didn't plan to write a series of reflective essays at the outset of my trip, but as I reflected, I decided to write down my thoughts. And as I wrote, I thought there would be some value in sharing them. As this is the final chapter of this story, I have the urge to distill some lesson or message, some takeaway. All I can think is that this experience was immensely valuable. And I would recommend anyone take a similar solitary journey that fits your personal flavor. Not everyone is going to leave town for three days without telling anyone. But here's a quote that I feel is both the catalyst for and the summation of my pilgrimage. If you ate lunch with the president every single day, you'd probably become more political. If you played golf with Bill Gates every morning, you'd probably get better at handling money. If you hung out with Steven Spielberg every afternoon, you'd probably watch more movies. What would happen if you hung out with Jesus every single day? My blog is a production of me, Bradley Rolf. I'm on Twitter and Instagram under my real name. If you'd like to skip ahead, links to my blog and other projects I'm working on can be found at anotherwhitesuburbanite.com. Peace.